0: Hey smart mamas, welcome to the Scrub Caps and Sippy Cups podcast, a podcast about balancing mom life and work life and everything in between. Being a mama is a hard job. We are three nurse anesthetists reaching out to support and encourage other moms with hectic and chaotic lives. I want to be a nurse anesthetist. No topics are off limits.
1: Relationships. Finance. Mental health.
2: Quick.
0: And we aren't sugarcoating
2: anything. No way, hold way.
0: This is real life, real moms, real advice. And we want this to be interactive. We want to hear from you the good, the bad, and the ugly. <laughs>
1: so we're, we're having some issues with my three year old understanding uh, death and that her some of her food dies in order for her to eat it. And we have yep. chickens. So then, you know, we we'll, she'll be like, what are we having for dinner? And I'll say we're having chicken and she goes, "Well, who killed the chicken? Where did the chicken die? Who how did the chicken die? How long ago yeah. did the chicken die?" Then we mourn the chicken, we cry for the chicken, then we eat the dino nuggets just like normal.
2: <laughs> yeah, you know, it's a perfectly valid thing. I mean, I people ask me all the time, should I allow my child to be vegetarian? They want to know where food comes from. Like you can't lie to your child and tell them that Mm -hmm. the chicken did not die. And if that's going to be like a major thing for them, maybe they were meant to be vegetarian. I mean, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like I'm preparing myself for her
1: to want to become a vegetarian, like we're, we are very honest with her and we just tell her, you know, we allow her to be sad and it's okay to process these things. And she still eats the chicken or the pig, right. but it's just like these awkward questions that like other adults who like come over for dinner, like aren't expecting when it's like, we're having bacon for breakfast. Oh, who killed the pig? <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> Everyone's looking at us like horrified. We're like, well, they went to a special place where that's what happens. And but you know we're we're homesteaders, so like we eat venison that we harvest on our property, and we eat the chicken that we raise, you know, and that yeah. kind of a thing. And so yeah. she's like exposed to it, and it's good for her to know where food comes from. But it's like mm-hmm. I'm prepared for her to like one day be like, I'm not eating meat, and I'll be like, okay, well I guess you're yeah, like, your but choice. you do know we're homesteaders.
2: <laughs> I know. Well,
1: it's like well, like it's it's still dead. <laughs> like, there's enough if you want to. <laughs>
0: Oh my my God. daughter is a vegetarian, but under the umbrella of she's picky and won't eat anything else.
2: Yeah, that's that's a different kind. I was like, yeah. that's a different kind of vegetarian, right? There's like all sorts of different kinds. Yeah, but she's <laughs> the, no. the
0: toddlerarian.
3: Jen, thank right. you <laughs> so much for hopping on with us today. We are super super excited. For this our following of where this podcast originated. I don't know how much you know about us, but We, um, Crystal started a group many years ago of CRNA moms, because it's very hard to find females in our profession who kind of bond over the same terrible, you know, in a good way, terrible, um, life stages we go through with kids, um, in this really demanding profession. So Mm -hmm. that's where we came from. And we have grown, I think we're like probably close to 10,000 people now in that group now. Um, and they are huge followers and lovers of your content humongous. I mean, I know you've got like a million plus followers, so we're a very small portion, but for us, no, you
2: know what? 10,000 is huge.
3: <laughs> yeah. We are we are huge followers of you. Anytime that there's questions in the group about like, you know, kids and eating or, or, you know, going down the entire path of just like dietary anything, the number one recommendation is, do you follow kids and eat in color every single time? So we were like, hundred percent priority on our list, you know, big reach for us, but here we are, we landed. So yeah, um, you know, sure. You. Well,
2: well, here's um, the thing. I mean, yeah, there's a million, millions of followers now, but like a year and a half ago or two years ago, whenever that was, it wasn't, it was 10,000. So yeah. I understand how, how much work you've put into To that, to even to have a community of that size. And we're like, I'm really big on because I think the impact of small groups and moms talking to moms is way bigger than say going on some dad bodybuilder (laughs) podcast. (laughs) We have one who keeps trying, like, don't you want to come on? I'm like, I don't think so. Like
3: yeah, not, not <laughs> your realm.
2: <laughs> yeah. Like, you always, do realize I haven't worked out for maybe a year or two or three.
3: <laughs> yeah. Well, and for our listeners, if you guys have not caught on yet, first of all, thank you for copying on another episode with us with Scrub Cups and Sippy Cups. We are pumped. We have Jennifer Anderson here. She runs Kids Eat in Color on Instagram, on all the platforms, and obviously a massive, massive knowledge and educational source For moms, dads, caretakers of any kind of children, any age, really. Um, And really just like even information for people of all ages, I feel like I've seen on there. We have come prepared with awesome questions for you from just like obviously stalking your content as moms. And you see here, you've got like three levels of moms. Crystal's the glam one, always. She's (laughs) always crushing it. I always look like this and I always have a sick baby, probably because Lacey and I have too many kids.
0: Um, I only have one, <laughs> so I
2: have time.
3: Yeah, but she always looks amazing. Um, and we have special you know, guests when Giada I had one. With us. I did
2: not look like you. I'm just saying.
3: <laughs> I know she's she's on another level. Yeah, always. Yeah. incredible. Especially like given her journey and everything. I'm like, how do you even peel yourself out of bed? Let alone look that like that. And I have no excuse. I just, you know. well, it's very <laughs> easy because <laughs> it's a wig today. I said no real shirt here. <laughs>
1: not today. This is me trying. You can't even tell that I put makeup on. <laughs>
2: I can tell. I this can is, tell. I can see it. This is me
1: trying.
3: <laughs> yeah. Um, Jen, it's would you not, just, it's not a lot. Could you fill us in for those of us who live under a rock? Somebody does not know who you are. Can you tell us kind of how you said you started at 10,000 followers two years ago? I remember that very clearly. And when I looked at your following the other day, I was like, Whoa, I don't know how that, happens. but tell us a little bit about your background how you ended up like, you know, this social phenomenon was that your plan and your goal. Do, you know, kind of walk us through that.
2: Sure, great question. So I started kids in color probably before I even had an Instagram account. Standing in my kitchen, preparing my three year old's lunch, and he was constantly falling off the growth chart, and and I just said to myself. I cannot be the only parent having a hard time feeding my child. I had had this idea that maybe I want to start a blog, but that sounded like too much work. And then someone, like six months later, recommended starting an Instagram page. I didn't even have Instagram on my phone, so I was like, "Sure, why not? And I'll just post these cute, you know, lunches that I'm I'm making for uh, for my child." And truly, my only intent was to put this stuff out there. Try to help another parent who's having a hard time feeding their kid who wasn't gaining weight or was having various eating issues. And then I started to help parents and moms especially. And they kept coming back and saying, Oh my gosh, this is amazing. You've changed my life. All these things. And I got hooked on it. And I was like, oh my gosh, these are my people. And then I, you know, the it it continued to grow. And and I remember somebody asking me about. Maybe a year after I had started, and I had I don't know maybe like four thousand followers, and I and they said, "Would you ever do this full time?" And I said, "No way. There's no way that I could support my family doing this. I was a primary income earner. My husband was a a student, and he was getting his PhD for years. And I, I, you know, I was like, I can't leave my full time job. Like I'm the reason we." can buy food and rent like <laughs> at the same time and so um and then that summer you know 10,000 followers and after that like i changed my educational content and i and then it just totally took off in a new way and around that time it dawned on me that i wasn't going to be able to do this and also have a full-time job forever and so then is when i began to think like how can i turn this into something where I can support my family and also support my Instagram community because I'm not leaving them. <laughs> I'm not just going I'm, to, I'm not going to walk away from my people yeah. for a steady paycheck, but also my kids need a steady paycheck. So I have to find a way to make both of this work.
3: Yeah, for sure. I think you fulfilled a massive <laughs> need in the, in, in, the world for someone like you, because we all relate to you. I think that's what probably grew it is that you are so relatable. It's insane. And I know Lacey, we should probably just open with your question that you just texted. Um, Cause Lacey's question is every single mom's question who has a two-year-old or a three-year-old. Like what is going oh, yeah. So go for it, Lacey, knock it uh,
1: out. Okay. So, so like my number one question is like, what what happened to my child at like three years old? Because <laughs> I we did the baby led weaning. We didn't do purees. They like I've got pictures of them like just shoving it in. And I was like, yeah, I'm a great parent. I was a super <laughs> picky eater, and I know that my parents wish they had you because I was like the standoff kid who like won the standoff because I had strong will. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and most picky eaters um, do hmm And now I've raised a couple of them. And my husband, who is now, he blames me and he's like, well, like I'm paying now for your, like the battles you fought when you were a child. Because he was oh the kid gosh. who like lived in the clean plate club and was just like, oh, see, look clean. But like, what happens to them? Because I, we did the baby led weaning. We did the stuff. They ate fabulously. And then they like, go through this like period of like decreased growth around three, I feel like, and then all of a sudden they stop eating as well. And you're like, well, they're, they kind of changed their growth and whatever. And you just, I I kept waiting for them to like snap out of it and, and they haven't. And so now I'm like, what, what like happens to them where they just like suddenly become a picky
2: eater? Cause I have two now that have done that. Right. Right. Great question, and I love that you have two because that protects your mental health in a special way. <laughs> it's <just> like, <laughs> wait a second, I did it all right, and by right, I mean I did what all the social media people told me what was right. And uh-huh. I wanna, I wanna address a couple of things. One <laughs> is this idea that baby-led weaning will prevent all picky eating. That's a myth. Even the research literature says that's a myth. Like. You know, if you get into the literature, and there's not that much of it, but if you get into the research literature and you look at it and you say, what is this really saying? It really shows that, you know, babies who went through uh, baby-laid weaning show decreased picky eating. (laughs) Not that they don't have picky eating, it just shows that they decreased. So is it feasible that there's some kids out there who had such low levels of picky eating that now they're not picky because they did baby-laid weaning? Oh, sure. That's not the majority. The majority are still going to be picky because that is something that kids often are. Another thing that you mentioned, you were a picky eater as a child. That speaks to the reality that some of picky eating is genetic. And so given the right circumstances, that genetics, those genetics are going to come out. Uh, we know if a parent had an increased neophobia, food neophobia, which is the fear of new foods, as a child, their kids are much more likely to be afraid of new foods. And so your husband's right. It's kind of like, it's from your line. I wouldn't say it's your fault. (laughs) I'd just say like, but I am sure that there's something from your husband's line where you're like, yeah, and that is yours. (laughs) Like that is from you, right? And so there's always these things. Like, do do you want a kid who like, rolls over and does anything you want and does that their whole life? Or do you want a strong kid who's like really hard to deal with? And then when they grow up, they're strong and they do what they want to do. You know, there's <laughs> a, there's always these trade-offs. And I find that picky eaters are very good at advocating for themselves as picky eaters. They might be afraid of new food. They may be disgusted by new food. They may be worried that you put something scary in their food. Mm-hmm. And they may have such an incredible large experience of eating that food that they can't deal with it and so there's so many reasons for picky eating other than you didn't wean right or <laughs> you or you didn't serve them enough foods when you were a kid now all those things are important to like feed your child responsibly and and you know hug them and cuddle them and like all these things are important but at the end of the day you may still end up with a picky eater and it doesn't mean it's your fault It just means that you won the picky kid lottery. Yeah. (laughs) I think I won.
0: I really think I won that lottery. So, my daughter went to um, a Goddard preschool. I don't know if you guys have that in your area
3: Mm -hmm.
0: where they offered breakfast, lunch, snack, an assortment, you know, a great menu, healthy options and mine wouldn't eat any of it. She wouldn't eat any of it, and she was acting out towards the end of the day because she was hungry, Mm -hmm. and I suggested that, well, I have foods that she will eat. I will send them in, and they wouldn't uh, let me. They said, unless Mm -hmm. it's an allergy or medical reason, you can't send in food. So for a year, one full year, my kid did not eat while at preschool, and then finally, we had another meeting, and they said, okay, you can send in food now, an entire year. I mean, mm. she just went on strike. She wasn't doing it. And mm. now she's eight and she's still holding strong. So mm-hmm. I, I don't know.
2: How many foods does she have? Does she eats? Is it like five or like, is it more like, like 20? Like eight, eight to 10. Yeah. Right. So your daughter is what we would think of as an extreme picky eater. And That you could see that in preschool where she could not. She was hungry. She probably is a wonderful person who wasn't trying to like make the, you know, person, you know, the preschool folks unhappy. You know, she's probably a wonderful person and she couldn't. She couldn't get over the hurdles to actually eat the food, even though she probably would have wanted to. And so, with extreme picky eaters, like we always have to remember, like probably what you have, Lacey, is is more of a. I, I hate to like label kids, and I really, I really okay. hate to do it. Because I label my own all the it's time. It's complicated, <laughs> right? And we want to think of kids as having the flexibility to grow into to. to New spaces, but like with your kids, I would say okay, they're they're like you know like pretty picky, right? Especially if you're seeing the onset at two or three, right? Mm -hmm. You but you know if Crystal, if you have a child who is showing that level of pickiness and at eight is still showing eight foods, right? That would be like extreme pickiness, and and then and then you're gonna have and I don't know and what your kids are like, but you know, maybe they're like picky, but but not that picky, but some days they're super picky, you know, that sort of thing. That's more of what I like to refer to as basic pickiness. And so there's all these different levels of pickiness. But when we see an extreme picky eater, in order for them to actually branch out and to be able to participate in more social settings and more experiences, they often need additional intervention on the part of the parent and sometimes even into feeding therapy or some of these other things. But we see what we see in our Better Bites picky eating course is that often parents can intervene and they can help their kids start to expand that list slowly. Even if they have a kid who has five or eight, you know, foods that they're eating. But the important thing is if you have an extreme picky eater, it is highly unlikely that your child will grow out of it. And that's that's just what we know. Like if you have an extreme pig eater, it's highly likely that they're... And pediatricians will often say, oh, they'll grow out of it. I'm like, well, that's not what the research shows. The research right. does is not that suggest I, that all kids will grow out of it.
1: Is that why I ordered the same like variation of chicken
2: at restaurants every time? Yes, <laughs> it is. It is exactly why. So <laughs> I think maybe we've all met an adult who is still an extreme picky eater. They Maybe they don't eat vegetables, they don't eat fruits. I grew up next door to a family where the the mom did not eat any fruits or vegetables. And the kids just knew that. And so their dad like force fed them vegetables (laughs) to to, to try to fix the problem. I'm like, that's actually not (laughs) the way to fix that problem. But that aside, the mom couldn't get over, like she never was kind of given the tools she needed to expand beyond that. And so, this isn't meant to like scare you or anything like that. Only to say that if you are in that situation where you have a child who's like unable to eat in a social situation or unable to eat past that those five foods or those eight foods, you're going to need to learn some extra tools that are going to help you begin to work with your child to know how to overcome that cuz it's not that they're doing this on purpose. They want to eat more foods often. They just can't and they have more hurdles to overcome than most kids.
3: That's, that's probably so helpful for people just to hear that they're not alone and that it's mm-hmm. not bad and it's not like, you know, something yeah. they're doing wrong. Um, and I think we're yeah. this- also
1: like giving the false hope that they'll just grow out of it. Right. Like, yeah, you know, of like, well, it'll just eventually get better. And it's like, when like when? Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's been years. When does this happen? Yeah. Right.
3: And I think Lacey, you had a second part of your question, which I think is also extremely common. Um, kids who don't want their food touching or like sauces, <laughs> they're, they're yes. not a sauce person. And like how mm-hmm. we do that as parents, because sometimes you can't really separate. Like sometimes like the sauce goes with the food. So you
1: can't- well, we live in the Midwest. We live in casserole country, yeah. where it's like to we get like out pile of the country. whole <laughs> dinner into one po- like pan and bake it. Like, yeah, That's you know, so we end we end up not doing casseroles in our family largely because of that. Because my mm-hmm. oldest, who's five in kindergarten, gets really upset when his food touches, and I'm kind of the same way. Like, I will eat like my food individually, and my husband is the kind of person who like mixes it all on the plate yeah. and I'm like yeah. I eat my mash I bite of mashed potatoes a bite of my you know vegetable a bite of whatever meat we're having and then I like rotate <laughs> yeah
3: my kids my kids actually it's funny are more likely to eat something if it's not separated if they can identify like separate pieces they're like what's that what's that what's that mm. but my mom makes them this is this is so stupid and annoying but I know I was the same way cuz she tells the same story <laughs> They eat what she makes faster and better than what I make, even though it's the same thing. And if I make it and I tell them she made it, they will eat it. But if I say I made it, they don't, even though it's the same exact food. So like she makes them stuffed peppers all the time because they're obsessed with her stuffed peppers and it's literally jumbled in their bowl and they inhale it. But if I make them those same ingredients, like ground meat, rice and peppers, It is not the same outcome. So I'm actually on the flip side, but what can you tell us about this? Like kids who don't want food touching, sauces, like how, what do we do?
2: Yeah, so honestly, kids are weird. I mean, (laughs) at some level, you're just like, okay, you don't want your food touching and you won't eat it unless it's touching. And yesterday you ate it when it was touching, but not today. You won't eat it because it is touching. I mean, we go, everybody, all parents, all parents everywhere, I guarantee you, they're dealing with the same thing day in, day out. I guarantee you there's like a million parents on the planet at this very moment going, you just told me that you loved this yesterday <laughs> and now you yes. have it at all. What happened? <laughs> it doesn't matter. The world over, there are kids saying this sort of thing. So so there's an no element of that. Now, could you possibly have an extreme pig eater? Sure. Could you possibly have a kid who has pretty extreme pigginess, uh, but isn't quite an extreme pig eater? Sure, you can have... You can have all of these. You can have all of these things. In general, what I recommend is if it's not causing a very big disturbance to the family or to the child or to, in general, everyone's eating and it's not a big deal, like fine. If they only want to eat with a divided plate, fine. My kids... (laughs) <laughs> I have one child who's my selective child. Uh, I, w- I won the first lottery, like the child who uh, had weight issues and I was in the P- uh, pediatrician's office like every three months for years because they're like, is he falling off the growth chart or is he not? <laughs> like flatlining on the growth chart. So I got I get that one. And then I got the, the picky eater for the second one. And um, that one, like he's for his, for what I know and what I've seen as professional, for what I know, he could be picky eater wise. He's doing pretty well. He's doing really well, but right now he doesn't want his food to touch, and he's six. He doesn't want his food to touch, which is fair. I also don't like my food touching, and I'm a grown up. <laughs> and but divided plates, we've never really done divided plates because I was like, the idea of like having special kid plates to me, it was like more than I could manage. So it was just like you get your garage sale corralware plate, just like everybody else. So they never really had divided plates. But of course, companies send me divided plates all the time. And he, I think, associates them with like being a little baby or something. So he's never, ever accepted a divided plate. So what he does right now is he takes the food off of his plate and he puts it onto the table into like five different piles, except for the one thing (laughs) that he wants on the plate. And I'm like, really? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> really, that's what you want to do? He <laughs> took gonna... control of that
0: situation.
2: <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. He is like 100% in control of his dinner, and don't you dare give him something that he doesn't want on his plate or in his section of the table. You know, he, he's in charge of it. But you know what? He's eating well. He's eating a variety of foods, and I can—I don't have to get involved in that. That's how he's coping with his picky eating, and we've set up a really food positive setting for him so that he's still able to eat a variety of foods, even if we are letting him do these kind of like, you know, uncommon behaviors with his meal.
0: My daughter eats, um, the only fruit she eats is a banana and Mm -hmm. she doesn't even like ice cream. Well, she won't try it. Mm-hmm. We went to an ice cream shop, I'm not kidding, on vacation, and she ordered a banana. She was like four years old at the counter. I mean, what yeah. kid orders a banana at an ice cream store?
2: Yeah, the kid who really wants to feel safe. They yeah. really want to be feel safe about what they're eating. Because here's the thing about ice cream. I could get a vanilla ice cream cone from my local grocery store in a local brand that I like. And then I could go to an ice cream store in a different state. Big, special vacation, amazing. We're going to go to this ice cream store that makes their own local ice cream. I could taste it and it's going to taste different. And I wasn't expecting that. And that is going to be really upsetting, especially if I'm a picky eater, where I don't know what things are going to taste like. If you taste you know, 25 different kinds of vanilla ice cream, they could all have a really different sensory quality to them. Some kind of are thin, some are extra creamy, some smell different, some look different, some have those black flecks in them. Beware <laughs> of anything with black flecks in it. <laughs> and so you never know. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been eating ice cream and there's kind of like a, there's just like a little something in there where you're like, I don't think that was supposed to be in there, but it's kind of like leftover yeah. from whenever they put in the ice cream. That's to an extreme picky eater, that is going to be A really high anxiety producing experience. And that will make them say, vanilla ice cream is not safe to me because I can't predict what it's going to be like. What what is it going to be like? Is it going to be bad? Is it going to be good? I don't know. And so if she's four, she's already figured that out. But she's probably had enough bananas that she has a pretty decent idea of what they look like and what they're gonna taste like. And and she's been okay with all of those that she's been exposed to. And she's like, a banana, that I know, and I'll I'll have that instead. That's wow. a great
3: way to so, put that is that I think that like the fact that they can't control it.
2: Mm-hmm, and it's mm-hmm. an
3: anxiety thing versus like, I'm just gonna be a difficult kid is right. so helpful because i think like as adults i don't even like situations that i can't control not so much with food but yeah. like other things so i wonder if there's something to that like that it's a personality type you know where like it's a control issue or an anxiety issue or something else you know where then there's the other kid that like shovels yeah. anything in their mouth they couldn't care less right
2: absolutely and there is a there is a mental health challenge called avoidant restrictive food intake disorder and for kids who have that it's called arfid they often really struggle with anxiety and so they really can't get over the anxiety to eat and they might have like growth issues nutrient deficiencies things like that related to their food intake but usually to be a diagnosed with that they actually have to be losing weight or something like that so there's there's specific criteria for that and so so there are these there's these things that make it very difficult. And there's people who are just more adventurous. Like it can handle a little more risk. So what? Maybe this vanilla thing will have the magic hard thing that I have to chew that I wasn't expecting. They're like, "Ooh, well, that was exciting." <laughs> you know. We've we've all met those people who are just they take on unexpected challenges in life and they're super excited. Like, "Ooh." It was like the adrenaline junkies, right? Yeah. And and that's gonna come out when they're kids too. And in their in their personalities, like so much of a kid's feeding and food and meal in, meal experience is gonna kind of reflect who they are in their in their um you know, and just just who they are. At the same time, we have to help them be healthy, as healthy as they can be. And and so we're left with. You know, trying to figure out, like, okay, I understand you're scared of all fruits and vegetables except for bananas, but I have to make sure that you're gonna get enough vitamin C in your diet so that you don't get scurvy, right? Mm -hmm. And so where where can we find a bridge here? Is it gonna be a vitamin or are those scary too? Or is it gonna be a some juice? Or like, what is that gonna look like? Cause I have to make sure, if at all possible for me. We can get this in through food before we have to go to you know a major supplement or like a feeding tube or things like that, right? Because there's there's just a whole range of options for kids who are in extreme situations.
3: Yeah. So what is then your advice on that? I know Lacey was um and I were talking about like kids and like forcing, not forcing, but like encouraging them to try new things. Like
1: what How do you like reintroduce it? Cause like with my kids. They like were the shovelers at like, yeah, my youngest is 18 months now. And we just like watch her shovel it in and we're like, well, at least Mm -hmm. we have one kid who eats, but like they would eat all of these foods. And then they kind of reach that point, like two and a half, three, where all of a sudden it's like, I used to love chili and now I won't touch it. And Mm -hmm. how do you like reintroduce things? Or if a kid has never been willing to try outside of their like five to 10 foods, how do you...
2: Kind of increase that food number mm-hmm. well, first, I always recommend parents start like we have advanced methods in our course, but I never let anybody just jump in there because I need to make sure we have a a healthy foundation for feeding kids, and that starts with making sure that kids are not being pressured to eat. That is the number one feeding problem that I see. is parents who care so much about their child's health or so much about, which is not a bad thing, but they care and they want to be involved and they want to see their child being healthy and like all those things. And so they are pressuring their child. That can look like a lot of different things. That can look like, I want you to try this. You have to try this. It's not polite if you don't try this. It can go into guilting. It can go into fear. It can be if you don't try this, you can't have dessert. Or if you try this, you'll get dessert. It can look like, hey, We're uh, like guilty uh, on bribing discipline. These yeah, <laughs> d- the discipline. Like if you don't try this, you have to go to your room. I mean, you name it. There's a million tools that parents have to try to make their child try a food. The more you pressure a child, in most cases, the more they absolutely will not try it. And you increase their anxiety. That makes it more difficult to eat. Makes the whole meal less, more stressful for everybody. And so to even really get started, we have to like take the pressure down. We have to take it down a notch. has to, like pressure has to go. If you have an extreme pig eater, pressure really, really absolutely must go. The meal time is we're coming together. We're sitting for an age appropriate amount of time. That is the meal. That is the meal there are foods on the table they don't even have to be on your plate if you have an extreme picky eater we're just sitting there together there is a food that we know you feel safe with it is here and that's where we stop now when we have kids who are you know maybe 2 or 3 and you're, you don't have different dishes on the table maybe maybe you do um when my kids were 2 and 3 i was like <laughs> i cannot have a bowl of spaghetti on the table that you may throw all over the house. Uh, so, in, <laughs> <laughs> in that case, I, uh, you know, maybe the food's on their plate, but really it's a low pressure environment where you're saying you don't have to eat it. You can say you're, you can eat it when you're ready. It's going to be here. And you, there's always going to be food on that table that they feel comfortable with in general. Because again, we're dealing with toddlers. So, you could be like, this is your favorite food. So, I put it on the table today. And they could be like, oh, but I don't like that today. In which case, that's fine. We'll move on. We'll try again tomorrow. But um, there's a food you generally think they like. It's on the table. They can eat as much as they want of that food. And from there, you can move on to some of the more advanced methods. But really, truly making sure that there's no pressure at the table is really going to put you on the right path to eventually getting to the place where you can do kind of you know more complicated things to help kids try to get over that hump to actually try and do things.
3: Um, You brought up something really interesting. And I just want to touch on this. I don't want to take too much time away from, we have some questions that I think like public health wise are really important that we go over on this, but you touched on an age appropriate amount of time to sit at the table, which I feel Mm -hmm. like a lot of parents, including myself, sometimes probably forget that like a Mm -hmm. year old is not a 33-year-old and yeah. can't focus for that long. So what is an age appropriate amount of time? What should we expect to be like, you know, quote unquote, the word everyone hates normal, um, yeah. for meal time as a family. <laughs> um, right. almost the worst word in the world. It makes you yeah, feel so truly. Bad immediately. Um, but I, I do, I mean, in our household, we do stress mealtime, like not in terms of like forcing them to eat during it, but the, just coming together as a family. I think it's mm-hmm. something to be said that like, that this generation has started to lose that because of screen time and just in general, like, you know, everyone's kind of doing their own thing. What is that age-appropriate amount of time and what should that look like and how should we encourage kids to do that and not, you know, iPads, not, you know, toys at the table and everything else?
2: Yeah, well, first off, you're the parent. So you set the rules. At our house, iPads, toys, tables, books. Uh, The only books we allow at the table are the joke books, which we read together because my kids are super into jokes right now, to the point of where I'm like, uh. (laughs) but hey, everybody's happy when that's happening. So um, so yeah, when we're thinking about age-appropriate amounts of time, the education specialist on our health and development team at Kids in Color is, she always reminds us that developmentally, kids have a really short attention span when they're Young kids, so babies may have a really short attention span. It could be thirty seconds, or it could, you know, or maybe you won the lottery and you you have the baby with a long attention span. Who knows? But she always reminds us, like, find your child's attention span, and that's kind of the baseline. And I I recommend that parents kind of choose a slow number. So maybe you decide the attention span that you're going to start with for your family is one minute. One minute. Everybody has to sit at the table. Do you stop there? No, but that gives everybody some success. Have a little timer that makes a noise or has a picture or something. When the noise goes off, if you're done, you can get down. If you're not done, you can stay, but you know that's the amount of time. And then you move the timer up every day, every other day until you find your child's max attention span. For us, that max attention span for years was... 12 minutes. And that was, that was like, we, we worked hard to get to that 12 minutes. And really, honestly, even now, like, I wouldn't set the timer for more than 10 minutes, 12 minutes. Even my kids are six and eight, they're super, super active. And it's just, once they're done, they want to get down and go. And so for us, that's, that's what we found. Now, some kids, they're happy to sit at the table. Be a part of the family and that's fine. But I really recommend using that timer to just kind of help them, you know, increase the time. And then when they get down, that's the other thing. When they get down saying, okay, you got down, that tells me you're done. And then their plate goes in the kitchen or whatever. And if they come back, you can say, Hey, you got down, and that means that you're done. Now, in that case, you know, a little bit later, I might give them a a snack to kind of get them through the night or whatever, as you're kind of teaching this. But basically. You want your kids to understand when you're sitting at the table, you're eating. When you get up, that means you're done. So if you're still not done, stay here at the table. Of course, that's like much easier said than done, but that's the theoretical framework.
1: (laughs) That's so. Now, before we go into the public health thing, which I think is really important, Ellen had a question about snacking. And my gosh, we have the issue with snacking Uh, in our house too, where it's like they come home from daycare. I'm starving. I'm starving. I'm going to starve. And then they sit down at the table and they want to do everything except eat the food that they were just going to starve if they didn't get.
3: Yeah. Right. And the snack thing is so hard for me because I, I go back and forth on this. I'm like, okay, if the only way that they will eat is like, you know, Snacky, 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 snacky. I don't know who came up with a snacky word or why every child knows it, but it's awful. Then, like, fine, then I'm just going to offer healthy snacks. So, like, we do yogurt sticks or, you know, like drinkable yogurts or cheese stick or apple. They, uh, my kid, thank God, luckily, they snack on like not so bad things. It's just constantly. So, it's like the meal time goes away. So, then my question is, is it completely irrational to expect a three and a five year old to have three meals in a day and like a snack in between where it seems like across the board, every kid eats like they graze all day long. And should I just be focused more on like, okay, fine, they grazed all day, but at least they had probably more intake than they would in three meals and it was healthy.
2: Yeah, so there's a lot of myths around snacking. One is that kids have to snack. In the United States, really the snack industry like put together the idea of a snack. And there there are other countries in the world where kids... Don't snack. It's just not part of it. So your child will not die if they don't have a snack. That said, it is generally no matter what they um, tell you. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, they're and what they're they're trying to tell you is, hey, I'm hungry and you're saying I I'm listening. And uh so there's a couple of things. One is you don't have to snack. Two is at least in the United States, it is our culture that we have small meals throughout the day. And that's fine too. The third thing is, we know that there's quite a bit of research showing that if kids eat a lot of meals, they often can't listen to their hunger and fullness cues in the same way. For example, if they're constantly having snacks, they're never going to be hungry. They're never going to be full. So they don't know Am I hungry? Am I full? I'm really just eating. I'm just eating whenever the food is there. So usually, if we have kids who are not eating enough or who are eating what seems like to be too much, the first order of business is to make sure they have routine meals and snacks throughout the day. That means three meals, and that means a morning snack, an afternoon snack. You'll see once they get to school, this is how they do it. I mean, for most of our lives from here on out, you will have times that you're allowed to eat and times that you're not allowed to eat. This is just part of human culture. It's part of working. It's part of going to school. I mean, kids can't just go to kindergarten and eat whenever they want. They certainly can't graze. They're going to have set meals and snacks. So it is perfectly fine from the age of... you know, As soon as they start eating solid foods to serve solid foods on a routine. I would actually venture to say that's a best practice. It's supported in the research literature. Now, we live in a pandemic world. Pandemic... Parenting is not for the faint of heart, uh, <laughs> and so I always like to remind parents that what we are experiencing now has is often leading us to decisions that are not rooted in quote best practice or evidence based practice for a greater good, such as our mental health or making it through the day with you know kids in the house and also working in the house. Like, I mean, it's it's kind of crazy. And so if you find yourself not using a best practice, it doesn't mean that you're a bad person or that you're a bad parent. It means that you are finding your best for this moment. And that may look different. Otherwise, I do recommend meal and snack routines. And it's okay. It's okay to say to your kids, now is not the time, the time to eat. Now, if you have one kid who's beating up another kid because he's so hungry, now is a good time for like an emergency snack to make sure the violence stops. <laughs> so there's always exceptions. There's always these moments, but it's okay for kids to experience hunger and fullness. And when they have those two to three hour breaks between eating, they can really get in touch with, oh, this is how hunger feels. I'm gonna eat more. This is what fullness feels. I'm
1: gonna stop. So Crystal, I'm curious in listening to this, what does your daughter do with snacks, with having like a limited amount of food that she's willing to eat? And she's school
3: age now, so she doesn't have that like- Yeah. So she used to take
0: forever to eat. I mean, this kid would sit down for an hour and a half and just eat so slowly. I was so worried when she went to kindergarten, you know, they give them, I don't know, 18 minutes for lunch, but she adapted and she figured it out and um, she eats enough of the foods that she eats. She's never really, she's always been petite, but she's never, you know, fallen off her, her curve. She's always, you know, stayed in range for her, but she, I mean, she does her meals three meals, shoot snacks sometimes in the morning. She like, she usually skips breakfast and then I'll have like a snack before lunch. Actually, that's usually her jam.
3: They're also different. It's so hard. We definitely wanted to talk to you, Jen, about, like we said, the public health thing. So let's talk about, I saw this on your social a while ago and I, so I've never utilized or known very much about the WIC program at all. But mm-hmm. when I saw what you had said about it, it kind of made so much sense because it's kind of like a lot of the public health programs, like if they don't get used, they don't see enough people using it, the budget gets cut because people assume mm-hmm. that they don't need it anymore. So mm-hmm. can you talk to us a little bit about that? Because I think that there's like, you know, this this stigma stigma. Yes, exactly. Around it, like Oh, I shouldn't use it, or it means something about me as a family, or whatever it is. Talk to us about Mm. your your you know knowledge base about it.
2: Sure. So, I during my dietetic internship, I actually got to work in a WIC office for several months, and was kind of fully trained as a WIC nutritionist. Additionally, my family actually my family of origin actually benefited from WIC, and of course, as a When I was studying for my master's in public health, I went to the school that had kind of piloted the WIC program. And so I have a lot of knowledge about WIC, but it was really when I was working in WIC that I learned more about the inner workings of the WIC program. And it is different than other... It's a public health program. So that makes it a little bit different than the the SNAP program Formula, formerly known as food stamps. And uh, this program like provides specific foods to families to use that improve birth outcomes, improve pregnancies, improve the health of moms, infants, and small kids up through the age of five. And so these programs are really strong. So if you look at the research literature around the WIC program, it improves the birth outcomes. It improves the health of the babies. It improves pregnancies of moms. It decreases preeclampsia. I mean, I would think especially for your group here, like everything that you would want to see is what this program contributes to. So I always like to remind people when we have healthy moms and healthy babies and healthy kids, little kids, we all benefit as a society. We all Mm -hmm. want pregnant moms to do better. Even if you're totally have your head under a rock and have no idea what is going on in the world, maybe you could connect the dots and realize, yes, we do want healthy moms because that's where all of our people come from, right? So having healthy moms is a top priority. A lot of families have this idea that if they use a benefit, somebody is not gonna get the benefit. That is just not what is happening. When you use a program like WIC, you are saying, hey, people need this program. And so when you use it, you're you're only going to use it for a couple of years. And then you're going to stop using it and somebody else is going to take your place because you used it. And so it's really important that we are sharing information about these programs so that they can continue to be used long-term. And it's uh, the other thing is, So WIC is administered at local level. So like lots of different organizations and and they're only reimbursed for services that they provide. So let's say they have a thousand people and they're reimbursed for those services that they provide. That enables them to actually hire enough staff to run their clinic and things like that. And then let's say all of a sudden only 500 people start using their services. Suddenly they don't have enough staff because they can't afford the staff anymore because they're not getting reimbursed cuz nobody is using it. So it's really important to actually use these services and to if you qualify of course, but to to think of them as a resource that you have in your in your toolbox if you need it.
3: Yeah, that's, that's really helpful because I think, although we probably don't qualify for stuff like that, I personally, I can tell you, I'm part of several mom groups, like in my area and a lot of moms on there ask for different kinds of help and assistance all the time. And I think that now knowing, I never knew this before. Um, now knowing that I think I'm going to be so much more likely to recommend that they take advantage of it. And I'll tell them, like, if we don't do that, it's going to be gone for the people that do want to use it. So I think it's really helpful. Um, And then along the same lines, can you talk to us? I've never heard this term used before. I didn't even recognize this this existed. I mean, we are very used to um, disparities in healthcare and access to healthcare because we work in healthcare. So we fully understand this. Food deserts blew my mind when I learned about them on your site. I had no idea that this is like something that affects us in the US. I'm from a different country originally, like third world. So like, obviously that's prevalent there. Here, I don't even think people know what food deserts are. I don't know what a food desert is. So
1: before we go into that, Ellen, I think that you raised a really good point about WIC. And I just want to say that I have a feeling that some of our student nurse anesthetist moms might qualify for WIC because these are Mm -hmm. grad students who Uh quit their job Sometimes they're they're the main income producer for their family and they quit their job to go to graduate school. You can't really work and do the training that we do. And so if you need that program for your time in anesthesia school, that is okay. And what Jen is saying is that you're holding a spot for someone to have it when you're when you're done. Because you'll graduate, you'll get, you know. A job, your income back. And then, yeah. And then you'll be able to somehow pay it forward in the future. But like, it's okay to use those programs when you need them for the set amount of time that you need them. And I just thought that that was yeah. really important to hear. So thank you. Absolutely. And and,
2: and I yeah. just want to like bring up the point that like, if you qualify, you absolutely need this program. <laughs> yeah. It's not like, <laughs> it's not like uh, groceries are cheap. And if you're a student, like I have talked to so many students who are like, I wanted to better my life. And so I went back to school because I wanted to be able to support my family and yeah. do various things in society. And I wanted to do all those things. And then when I got to graduate school, I didn't have any income and I couldn't get the income. And so we didn't have any food or my like, you don't want your children to kind of be bearing the brunt of what's going on. You want them to have the nutritional things that they need right now when they're developing so that they can grow up and and you and you know you're absolutely right you're going to grow up and you're going to graduate and you you are going to be an amazing taxpayer from here on out you will absolutely pay the collective society back both in the health of your child your health and also just in your support, in your support of the society. And I guarantee you, if you've done that, you will have the capacity for empathy if you want it going forward and helping other parents know that this is a resource when they need it. Oh my God, I love that. I love, I love that. that so much.
3: Yeah, so good, so good. Tell us about food deserts. Tell us everything. Crystal? Yeah, so
1: <laughs> I joke desert. that I live in a food desert because I don't like the, the Restaurants in our area. There are a lot of like pub. That's um, not a food like, desert. I, like that's I, mean, I know it's desert. not. I joke that I live in a food desert, but it's it's not. We we you
3: don't. You also kill your own food and eat it. Like you are like the opposite. <laughs> of the food. You're like it a. Sounds food like you live a-
2: like in a forest. <laughs> you live in like a <laughs> euphoria. Yeah, but you do make a point, and there's multiple <laughs> kinds of food deserts. So obviously, if you're able to hunt your own food, that's that is one thing most people don't have those skills. Like I'm not going to be out there in the freezing cold with like, you know, a rifle on, <laughs> trying to like make that work. Um, <laughs> and if I did, like, I don't know what I would do with, you know, all those things. But, <laughs> but the reality is, is a lot of people don't have access to grocery stores mm-hmm. and places that would sell a variety of fresh or, or even frozen or any sort of like a variety of foods. So what is the USDA refers to food deserts and they have a very technical definition, which I do not have memorized, but that is, I believe it is on my social media feed somewhere with like a (laughs) reference if you want to like go digging and find it. But the reality is like a food desert can be rural. It can be urban. It is a place where you do not have close access to a grocery store or a food, a, a place where you could buy a variety of foods. And this is pretty serious. Like, You know, there's all these messages eat healthy. Okay. So, what if I don't have enough food? Or, what if I don't have access to food? Tons of people in rural communities do not have access to a place where they can drive, where they can access food. They don't, maybe they don't have a car. So, that means they can't drive an hour and a half to the nearest uh, grocery store. And that means that they are. Going to rely on someone that they know to take them once a month, every other month, maybe, and they're going to have to be able to get that food back in a safe manner, and then they're going to have to have some place to store it. If you don't have a lot of resources, it is very difficult if you're in a food desert or a place that doesn't have access to food to actually be able to bring in a variety of foods into your house. Same thing goes for for urban settings. You know, I worked, I did my graduate research in in food deserts in baltimore city I, there when we moved there on the west side of baltimore there was one grocery store and if you didn't and it was not next to a bus route so if you wanted to actually get there you would have to walk miles i mean i don't know about you but if i need to bring in groceries for my family that's a lot of trips and if i have to walk a mile walk two miles how is that going to work? Like, do I have to walk two miles to and from every day to be able to get enough groceries to feed my family? Um, Carry a gallon of milk, you know, for your kids. Like, yeah. And then maybe the, maybe the you know, maybe the the corner store. Now there's a lot of corner stores, but often those stores are only carrying canned foods. They're only carrying foods that are shelf-stable. They're going to carry a lot of kind of your less nutrient-dense foods because they can last for 6 months on the shelf the store doesn't have to carry that inventory because even the store owners i mean they are real people who have these teeny tiny small businesses they can't afford to be losing produce or you know carrying the burden of inventory costs when they're hand to mouth as well and so there's all these dynamics that are going on that really make it difficult for people in urban areas as well as rural areas to be able to to get a variety of foods for their diet. I really appreciate
1: that you mentioned rural areas as well because I feel like rural poverty and rural issues tend to just get lost in in the way that we talk about poverty. Mm -hmm. But we live in rural Minnesota and Mm -hmm. it's such a weird dichotomy of... The land is worth millions of dollars, right? You have farmland worth millions of dollars. Communities are incredibly impoverished and there's really nothing left. And the people that are left are like everyone has moved out. There's no grocery store anymore. There's like these communities are just like shells of their former selves. And there's just such extreme poverty when everything around them is worth millions of dollars. It's just such a, a weird thing. But mm-hmm. my husband and I were having this conversation yesterday. So it's kind of funny that you brought it up. But yeah. Yeah. And also,
2: we also like to stereotype people who are in poverty. We want to say, oh, well, Black people are in poverty. Brown people are in poverty. But white people, no, they're working at jobs and they're not in poverty. And so there's also this bias toward Thinking that it's not possible that like working white families could be in poverty. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. There are families mm-hmm. all over the country who are experiencing poverty. And just because we've kind of stereotyped poverty as these kind of urban centers, you know, that, and that is a huge, you know, condensed mm-hmm. place for poverty yeah. in a lot of communities. Oh, but we sure. also have really, really intense poverty, hunger. All those things in rural com- communities as well,
1: and hunger is something that I feel like isn't talked about, where it's like um it's just something that's like hidden. So like our when my son started kindergarten this year, they have a like backpack food program where you can um, sign up as a family, and the teacher essentially like kind of like, sneaks food into the kids backpack to take home every day and then like some extra for the weekend and so it's done like very discreetly and but it's like you know that just in some ways like i'm glad that it's discreet and people don't feel like they need to have like hide from it you know like or feel like mm-hmm. they need to have that like aired in the public but also it's like it just i feel like further reinforces this like we need to hide from
2: these issues. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, it's really... I started my career at a food bank coordinating youth nutrition programs. And that was when backpack programs were just starting to kind of start up. And we we actually piloted a backpack program. And they're tricky to run. They're tricky to run because there is stigma. And families don't want their kids to get extra food. Um, I know my mom is in a community and her... They started backpack, their church started a backpack program. And what they found in their area was the parents were eating the food that the kids were bringing back. And so they had to move the program to like a full family box, feeding box. And that's the only way that they could make it work because the parents were so... Ill equipped to be parents or to take care of their kids. They had such low capacity that they couldn't even allow the food to just go to their child. So I feel like there's so many different things that families are struggling with. And hunger is a huge issue. One in six kids right now is experiencing hunger. That's not okay. I mean, it's so many, so many kids. Like if you think about what that means, so many kids.
3: Um, I think we can wrap up with one last question. Although I really, really hope we could do a part two, because I think that we left, um, a whole conversation untouched that a lot of people would benefit from, which is like the nutritional side of things, you know, talking about like milk and whole wheat, white stuff, you know, all of that. But I do, and like dessert, the whole question of dessert, Um, (laughs) we've got so much untouched. Uh We could talk for hours with you. But um, so the one question I definitely want to leave off on, because we're in that season, both like as parents and also just like actually seasonally, nutrition for sick kids, Mm -hmm. it's really hard. So aside from the fact that there's, a lot that we can't control. What should of the things we can control? What should we focus on the most with getting into our kids, both supplementally and nutrition-wise, during, you know, the virus going around right now, the normal viruses mm-hmm. going around, and just like that daycare toddler, young kid age mm-hmm. when they're sick all mm-hmm. the time. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs>
2: Crazy. I need your baby. Yeah. <laughs> your adorable <laughs> baby, I will add. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks so well, there's a couple of things. Um, one is this is not medical advice. Two, your baby's going to get sick all the time. Hydration, 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 hydration. If they eat nothing, keep them hydrated. Um, whatever it takes, whatever Pedialyte, whatever Gatorade, people are like, oh my gosh, would you recommend Gatorade? I don't care what it is as long as you're keeping your child hydrated. If you're like the no food dye person, get the dye free. If you're the, I don't care, whatever was in my store and I'm in a food desert area, like seriously, whatever is there, the juice. Um, Now, if your child does have diarrhea, I would not recommend juice. That can really make it worse. But really, we want to focus on hydration. Hydration is the thing that's going to end them up in the hospital, not lack of appetite. When they get better, their appetite is going to come back. They're going to eat extra, um in most cases and they're going to they're going to pick back up does that mean you just okay they're sick i'm just going to feed them anything and everything and i'll just feed them all the cookies and the crackers and like you don't have to do that you don't you don't need to give them like all the cookies cuz that's the only thing they'll eat when they're sick the reality is they're sick i lose my appetite when i'm sick it's fine they're gonna, they're gonna be okay. Now, if you do have a, uh, you know, an urgent concern, you're like they haven't eaten for five days, um, or three days, or whatever it is that's concerning you, definitely call your pediatrician. But in general, they're just feed them lots of watery fruits and vegetables, whatever's safe, age appropriate for your child. And you know, like my kids love watermelon when they're sick. It's soothing, it's cool. If they have a fever, you can turn it into a popsicle. You can blend it up and turn it into juice, that sort of thing. It's got lots of nutrients, all the things. I just really focus on that hydration. Now, if they're throwing up, you really don't want to focus on the food at all (laughs) because they're throwing up. Just tiny sips of water or Gatorade or whatever that is, Pedialyte, whatever. We're brand neutral, so I don't really care what it is as long as they're drinking it regularly. Got to keep them hydrated. If they are, if they do have diarrhea or they're throwing up, choosing a drink with some added zinc in it is also really helpful for their faster, for the faster uh, recovery. Now, if you have a kid who is then recovering, again, whatever your normal meals are, feed them that. There is a myth that the brat diet, which is bananas, uh, applesauce, toast. Rice. That's what you should feed kids when they have diarrhea. The research shows that that prolongs diarrhea because it doesn't have enough fiber. So, while that may be okay if your child is throwing up, that is not a best practice for if your child has diarrhea. In that case, you really want to be feeding them their normal diet and just let them decide if they're hungry or not. But your normal diet is probably going to have more fiber, it's going to have the nutrients they need that is actually going to help them get better faster. And that's what I really recommend for most colds and viruses and all that stuff is hydration and then normal diet. People are like, what if their normal diet is the brat diet? Well, then I can't really help you. Like <laughs> don't introduce <laughs> new foods that your child hates when they are sick. Like that's not going to work. And yes, you can make their favorite normal meals. That's totally fine. But don't feel like you suddenly need to just feed them ice cream all day. Because that's the only thing that they will eat. They're sick. It's okay.
1: So when you were talking about fiber, um, we had to start using fiber gummies with my three-year-old due to some of her GI stuff. But is that something that you would recommend with like the diarrhea and stuff
2: like that to like try to? No, I wouldn't recommend any supplements. Like, yeah, I wouldn't unless you're working with your pediatrician. They're like, "Hey, I want you to take this." Otherwise, the research really, the research doesn't address fiber supplements. At least I haven't seen anything recently. So, really, the best practice is just normal meals, lots of hydration. I wouldn't like try to go to supplementation now. If you have a kid in daycare, where the supplements are really going to pay off, is making sure your child has a regular vitamin D supplement. Making your child—I mean, that's like the real big thing—is the vitamin D yeah. supplementation yeah. within within the balance of what your pediatrician recommends and that sort of thing. And I don't make you know recommendations on podcasts because that's too risky right. <laughs> in yeah. terms of how much. Um, oh, for sure. Yeah, I, mean, I think but, we all
3: kind of follow our own thing. Like we we obviously do our own research. We are big into that. Like I have my kids on ionic zinc vitamin C and D3 in in the wintertime, zinc always Mm really, but um, where do you stand on the echinacea elderberry thing just out of curiosity?
2: Yeah, so I'll be honest, I have not had two minutes to update look into updated research related to COVID and elderberry. I know that the concern was in the past that it could potentially increase inflammation to the point of being problematic in, in COVID. Based on what I've seen, that hasn't really panned out, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's safe, right? Because I haven't had a chance to go and see, is there any research that's looking into this? And obviously, if there is any research, it's going to be new research. Yeah. So we always need to interpret new research with a grain of salt because... Research is made by continuously studying something and see what the results are over time. And here's the other thing about echinacea and elderberry. They do increase the immune response. So so you don't want to like overdo Mm -hmm. their immune... Like I would never give my child elderberry syrup and I never have like all year long. Right. Like we don't have any research on what that could do to a child. Instead when my kids are getting sick, like the first sign, when when that little drip comes like down. <laughs> so you're like, no, that moment. That's the moment where you're like, here's and here's some elderberry. Yeah. And and now there's not a lot of research in elderberry and kids. So again, you have to kind of say, what's my risk tolerance? And while I may have had a risk tolerance that said, okay, I'm okay with this, but only off and on. Um, and other people are like, oh sure, I'll give it to my, my super young baby. I wasn't really that cool giving it to my super young baby. But again, every family has a risk tolerant and what they've read and all that sort of thing. There's just not a lot of research to fall back on for safety or, or not safety, you know, and it's one of those things. So for us, it's more like first sign, here you go. Nowadays, I just kind of want to know that it's it's not COVID or it is COVID. My big issue is, can I send you to school or yes. can I not? Yeah,
3: <laughs> my own life or are we all locked down?
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, that's that's the thing. So, well, elderberry, I mean, it totally has transformed my family's lives. You know, especially pre-pandemic, when my kids used to be at school in school doors all the time and they got sick, elderberry was huge. It was huge for us so helpful in helping kids not get like those really bad Mm -hmm. RSVs and things like that. Prolonged. Yeah, for the long time. I mean, yes, they still got everything. But, and and I also just want to say like vitamin D, echinacea, elderberry, these are not substitutes for things like vaccines. So like these are totally different totally different things they are absolutely not going to have the same effect yeah, just so sure. just want to be clear about that
3: a less duration and they just make it more tolerable They're not, exactly. we're not we're not eating here for like you know fully holistic cuz you know eating leaves to prevent things you know kids no, need to no. eat But uh, I can't get my kid to eat a leaf. No, I'm
2: kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, lettuce. (laughs) Anything to get the little lettuce. Yeah, I mean, even with elderberry, elderberry, there's not a lot of research on elderberry being used in prevention of colds. It's just reducing severity and duration. And so I always like to remind people, like headlines are a great place to find information about things. Like elderberry prevents blah, blah, blah. I mean, and then you actually read the studies and it's not at all what they said. I mean, sometimes the, the headlines are not even close to what the research abstract says. And so getting nutrition information from the news is not a reliable way to get nutrition and health information. It feels good yeah, but it's not reliable, and we end up saying, "Oh, take elderberry all the time, and you'll never get anything else." Yeah, like that's not that—that's not real. Like that's yeah. not going to happen.
3: Yeah, I always say I—I I heard this a long time ago, and I say it now all the time: that news is for entertainment, not education. Um, yes. and it's it's so true nowadays. But we thank you so so much for hopping on here. Hopefully, we get to catch up on a second part of this soon um, and address all like the nutritional things. I know our moms and our listeners going to be so glad we did this. And you know, just tell us for those of us, like I said, who live under a rock and we've said it many times, where can people find you that don't already follow you?
2: Yeah. So kissingcolor.com is the place where you can find everything. We're on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, Pinterest. I mean, all the places <laughs> where cool and uncool people are. <laughs> um, <laughs> so whoever you are, that's where you can find us or... Just ask your local mom group. <laughs> yeah, yeah definitely.
3: and guys, thank you so much for listening to this episode. I know that it's been a long time coming, and everyone's been asking for this for so long, and we're glad to finally deliver. You can find us at Scrub Caps and Sippy Cups on Facebook. We're on Instagram at Hey Smart Mamas. We are on Twitter um, at Scrub Caps and Sippy Cups. Crystal, you want to give us your Instagram handle?
0: Yeah, I am on Instagram at STL underscore injector and Lacey is at Ms. Lacey Lee. Yeah.
3: Ellen, at at Ellen at Ellen Lina. Lina. I keep it simple because I'll forget my own Instagram handle otherwise. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <And> thank <laughs> you so much, Jennifer. You yes. were amazing, incredible, more than we even expected. We just are so thankful you sat down and chatted with us.
3: Yes. Absolutely. absolutely. I think fabulous. fabulous. We hope you're following too and maybe they can learn something new from us as well, you know, being moms in healthcare and just like being there through the trenches with them. We have a lot of content, I think that would serve your audience well from previous guests we've had also. So hopefully this is a mutually beneficial relationship.
2: Thank Absolutely. you so much.
1: Yeah. Okay. okay thank, thank you. you. Okay, bye. I mean, appreciate it. Bye.
2: Okay. Bye-bye.